Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 28, The New God and the Celtic Church. As we discussed, there is a prevailing belief amongst academics that Christianity was a late bloomer in Roman Britain, only arriving in force during the 4th century. It was also argued that there was little evidence of Christians even then. However, archaeologists in the last 30 years have challenged that notion, and evidence has been found in rural and urban areas a burial practice which were unique to Christians. In pagan times, you were buried in a particular direction, usually north to south, whereas in Christian burials for reasons to do with Jerusalem, you were generally buried east to west, thus your head was pointed towards the spot of the second coming, so that when Christ came again and you rose in the grave, you would be facing Jerusalem, basically. Um... And in other words, you were effectively facing God. The concepts behind that meant that it was a change in the way people were buried and the way others perceived those burials. And much like everything else with archaeology, it seems to be burial practices which identify people and what they were doing, and especially their ritualization, because the more complex the burial, the more likely certain things are. Now, the other thing about Christian burials over uh, pagan burials is that pagan burials were still wrapped around the idea of burying people with things. You still had items like trinkets and meaningful items that you took with you. Sometimes you had pets that were buried with you. Sometimes you would have artificial images of gods and of possibly servants, depending on where we're talking that were buried with you, and grave goods that were quite fantastic in some cases. Christians askew from all of that at this stage, and they're actually buried very simply, typically buried, like I said, in the direction of east to west, and the reason being is, again, this idea that Christianity was a, uh, a place where everyone was now equal, you died equal, and your afterlife would be equal. You were all equal before the sight of God, so thus you didn't need all this other crap that you would take with you, so to speak. And so for early Christian burials, that was kind of how it worked. And so for an archaeologist, when you're looking, you can identify these changes, and you can figure out, well, okay, if this is happening, likely this is why. And as Christianity migrated from the Levant to Rome, to cover the whole of the Roman Empire, we see these burial practices starting to be followed. The other thing you find is you'll find Christian symbols in and around burial sites, um, one of which at that time would have been the the uh, fish symbol that we see often um, now. It's associated with uh, born-again Christians, but at the time that was a symbol that was used. There's a number of other symbols that represent Christ, but that was one of them. And so often you'll see those, you'll see crosses and things put near burial sites. A lot of people believe that one of the reasons why they didn't think there was Christianity early on is because there was a lack of these kind of things, a lack of obvious finds that pointed to Christian burials or Christian sites or Christian churches. And the likelihood is is it probably didn't spread significantly before that, even though in all likelihood, you had Christians in Britain long before that. It's just you didn't have loads of them. They weren't the predominant religion. Obviously, if you don't have the favor of the government, the likelihood of you being able to spread your religion becomes very difficult, especially if there's open persecution against you. 
And in this case, that was part of the problem. So up until you have Constantine in the beginning of the 300s, labeling Christianity as an acceptable imperial religion, you don't have loads of people pointing out, hey, hey, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Because that generally ended badly for you, unless you were really, really wanting to be martyred. And so that's one of the things that, that we can point out about that. The other thing is, is as it started to spread and as it became the official religion, the other thing we start to see in Roman sites is uh, iconoclasm, which is where, for example, where you have uh, mosaics, if they have gods from the Roman pantheon, or in some cases, gods from other pantheons, they will actually be smashed. Uh, in fact, one of the things that happened to the, uh, to the Parthenon in, in Athens was that some of the statues were smashed because that was considered idol worship, and so Christians would break them. And, same, and we see this today, even when you look at like ISIS in Syria and Iran, or Iraq, sorry, uh, they would do the same sort of thing where they blow up ancient pagan temples or destroy Christian sites, mostly, I think, to cause outrage, but also because this is a part of the faith. You know, you're trying to eliminate the other and the old, and that's one way that you do that. Obviously, from a historical perspective, it's abominable, but from the perspective of those people, it was seen as a normal obvious way to show your Christian belief system to throw off the old and enter into the new, much like baptism in that respect. And so people would destroy these mosaics, and we find evidence of that in Britain. So by the fourth century, as Britain is rising into uh, probably the height of its power as a financial capital for the Roman Empire, that was one of the derivatives of that is the spread of Christianity as the money and the trade and the wealth moved, Christianity spread into it. So you have that happening, but at the same time, you end up with, as I described last week, not only do they destroy what came before, it also often involves transfiguring things to try and fit the new category. You take old ideas or old holy days or old festival ideas, and you change those to match the current one. You know, you have a festival that celebrates the God of the Sun. Hey, we have a Son of God. How about we take the Son of God, and he's the new head of this particular worship service, uh, or this holy day. And in some cases, they would do that. In some cases, they would eliminate them. But the other thing you would do is you would also see some of those gods or some of those holy people that were idolized or were problematic because you couldn't get rid of them really easy. And if you continued to sort of fight against them, it made it very difficult to build bridges and build Christianity. So in some cases, these people would slowly over time become a part of Christianity, likely because the writers who, that, you know, that predominantly knew how to write Latin were religious people out of Christianity. So as the saying goes, history is written by the winners. Well, it's no different in religious practice. And so you have figures who are likely gods from the old religion now being merged in as saints. So you get Saint Brigade instead of the goddess Brigade. You have all of these things sort of happening. And like we talked about last week, you see these legendary figures suddenly becoming Christian Christianized or some of the stories being Christianized in a way that made them about the Lord and God and angels and not about 
you know, the old pagan god who was wanting you to go down to the river and throw your sword in. And so all of these things get transformed and made Christian. And the other thing that's happening at the same time in the mid-4th century, we end up with the final canonization of the Bible. In 367 AD, Anathiasis of Alexandra seems to have set out the firmest list to this point of the 27 books that make up the current Bible. Up until then, the current the collected writings and gospels and all these other things that made up what we call the New Testament were not firmly set. If you had a particular bent in your religious belief, if your particular type of Christianity leaned one way or the other, you would end up having a gospel that f was fit for you, or you had a collection of letters from the, the, in quotes, apostles or disciples or followers of Christ or later people who defined your religious belief system so that it fit within Christianity, but yet was its own unique idea. We find this with the Gnostics, the Gnostic Gospels that have been found in Coptic Christianity, in Pelagianism, which we're going to talk about shortly, and all of these other derivatives that become, in one way or another, significant to Christian beliefs all sort of had their own books that they followed or their own ideas or their own calendars about how things were worshipped, how you would do things. Procedure became as important to Christians in this period as actual faith and, and actual policy. You know, the, the idea that your hair would be cut the wrong way was a big deal, and people would argue about it. And in fact, Bede writes a great big document over the idea that you wouldn't wear a tonsure this way, it's got to be that way, and you wouldn't you know, celebrate Easter on the wrong day. That's just silly. And so there's a great conflict over these ideas, and they're just nitpicks. Like, if you look at them in some cases, you think, what's so exciting and so vigorous that we have to persecute people over this? But to an Orthodox Christian, some of this is perceived as being very insidious, and that it can destroy your faith because these people are arguing that God isn't God and Jesus is not the Son of God, or they're arguing, you know, like I said, that Easter didn't happen this day, it happened this day, and and all of these things become very contentious, and we see it even today. I mean, we don't have thousands of Christian religions for nothing. They, they exist because people have disagreed over, in some cases, what we would perceive as to be very small things, but they've become big things in the way that they've developed since then. And Christianity now is so much different from what it was then because there is no such thing as orthodoxy. Even in this period, there's no real such thing as orthodoxy. There, well, there is a thing called orthodoxy, but it's not the final say on everything. It's not the only option. There's a lot of what they would call heretical things going around at the time. But yet, Christianity moves forward. The belief systems continue to move forward, likely because of, as I said, the trade and movement of wealth and goods spread it even quicker than it would have been otherwise. And so by the end of the Roman period in Britain, we find Christianity is spread throughout the countryside. There are monks. There is all sorts of proselyting going on. There's not necessarily the same ideas that we have now, but they are being spread. And because of this, you end up with people like the one we're going to talk about here in a second, who are brought into Christianity for generations who now are spreading it to other places. 
In the one case, it's uh, the person we're going to talk about is actually Patricius, uh, who was a son of a deacon in Roman Britain, was possibly born, and unfortunately with this particular character, there's a lot of possibilities and maybes, born in northern England, uh, not far from Hadrian's Wall, south of it, uh, in a, a naval base, which was on the Irish Sea. And this explains a lot, because he ends up getting captured by the Irish and enslaved, and is brought to Ireland and eventually escapes, and then hears the call to go back and try and convert the Irish to Christianity. And his name will be known as Patrick in, in English. And he is a seminal figure for Irish people and their history and their understanding of how Christianity came to their land. Well, he is a 5th century Roman Briton who has moved with the times, so to speak, and has become mixed up in what's going on there at the time, which is twofold. Christianity is advancing. It's still growing. It's still progressing, even as chaos is starting to claim the countryside. And at the same time, they are still looking to spread their religion even further. And that's what he does. Now, does he leave Ireland or leave for Ireland because of the call, as he describes it, the, the, the need to go help those people? Or is it more about the fact that he, you know, things are not great where he is at? And maybe it seems to make sense to go back to Ireland because Ireland seems to be a nicer, more peaceful area. It's really impossible to completely know. I think there are other people that are better set to answer those questions than myself. But just my feeling is, is again, we're reliant upon letters he's written and people have written about his history after the fact. And they're trying to do it from a faith perspective. So there's not a lot of uh, historical understanding here. It's, it's more about trying to explain why God would have called him to do this, why he is an angelic figure worthy of sainthood. Thus, his life story is told in a very legendary, fantastic way to try and give you this reason why he's such an important figure. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box 
plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. It doesn't make him any less important. It doesn't make what he did any less important. But it has to be understood in the context of when we read the writings, particularly of early saints, you're not going to have it's going to have a lot of bias geared towards trying to make them saints and trying to give you an image of this holy person who has power beyond what we would mere mortals would have basically relating them to some of the early christians and the early believers of christ who were perceived to have these magical and mystical powers to be able to do things that would help spread the faith heal the sick raise the dead, all of those things that were perceived to have come from Jesus. And so if you could do that, that was kind of a way to show your miracles. Thus, you must be blessed and be sainted. So regardless of that, what we do know, as I said, is what I've, what I've explained. Um, his travels and accomplishments are fraught with legends, but it doesn't take away from the fact that he's an important figure, that he's a historical figure. We find evidence. We find his own writings. And we know that he did some things in a period that we're very interested in, which is that late 300s, early 400s, and onward. And that hit with him, we see that Roman Britons aren't just all about, ah, the Anglo-Saxons are here, it's all chaos, oh, oh, oh. They were also out there trying to bring the faith to others trying to convince others and work with others in other ways. And it's a fascinating thing to sort of see. And to be honest, this will then lead to Bede calling these same people out on the carpet over the fact that they, in perception of Bede, ignored the Anglo-Saxons and didn't try to spread the religious movement to them, 
until foreigners came to the land to do it for them. So, and we'll get more into that much farther down the road. The other big thing that comes to Britain at this time is Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a type of Christianity which, at the same time, we have uh, Patrick wandering the island of Ireland. We have a British monk who is living roughly a similar time period, late 3rd, 4th century, sorry, early 5th century. His name is actually Pelagius. Pelagius has an idea of how he feels Christianity should be. And one of his big things is the concept that there was no original, that original sin, in other words, the fall of Adam, that the eating of the fruit from the tree of knowledge by Eve, which gave us humanity as a sinful and fallen person along with the world, did not really apply. And that human nature is not tainted by original sin. Of course, in in Christian and Jewish thought, that's not the case. The idea is, is that when Eve took the fruit and then gave it to Adam, the world fell, it is in a sin, and the only way it gets out of sin is through Christ. And without Christ, we would never have escaped that. So Pelagius's argument then is against the idea that Christ is the proper redeemer of the world by that perspective. Even if he need God to get back to him, it's not a case of overcoming original sin. It's just strictly you need God to live a sinless life, which is a different sort of situation. And that you have to access, without becoming a very religious podcast, God's grace through to overcome sin, but it's not a case of Adam cursing you because he bit into, for lack of a better phrase, the apple. This was very controversial, as you can imagine, and it became considered a tainted thing. And in that era of the early to mid-5th century, it became popular in Britain, popular enough that monks in Gaul assembled along with British monks to go after them and to stop Pelagianism. And the Council of Diopolis, or also known as Lydia or Laud, this council initially found Pelagius to be orthodox in his belief system. But the Council of Carthage, rather than finding that in 418, actually decided that no, he was actually wrong and it needed to stop. And by 431, at the Council of Ephesus, uh, the whole idea of what Pelagius was preaching was fought against. And at the same time that this was going on, in about 429, Germanius of Ogier comes to Britain. And Germanus is not fooling around. I mean, according to Bede, he's come to stamp out this heresy, and that he was not going to put up with it anymore. Uh, Prosper of Aquitaine in 433, which is right around this time period, says, Agricola, a Pelagian, uh, who was the son of the Pelagian bishop Servanius, corrupted the British churches by insinuating his doctrine. But at the persuasion of the deacon Palladius and the Pope Celestine, they sent Germanus, the bishop, 
as his representative and fought against the heretics. In other words, he came to defeat the heresy of Pelagianism. Constantius, in 480, writes, About this time, a disputation from Britain came to tell the bishops of Gaul of the heresy of Pelagius, that it had taken hold over the people in a great part of the country, and help ought to be brought to the Catholic faith as soon as possible. A large number of bishops gathered in a widely attended synod to consider the matter, and all turned in help to the two who, in everybody's judgment, were the leading lights of religion, namely Germanus and Lupus, apostolic priests who thought their merits were citizens of heaven, though their bodies were on earth. Uh, and again, like I said, a few hundred years later now, we have Bede's interpretation of this, and he describes it as that Lupus and Germanus arrive in Britain, they immediately start to deal with this heresy. He describes it as they arrive and crowds mob them and basically plead for their help and help us defeat this terrible thing that's come to us. And so they go about trying to convince the British people to come back to the proper faith and so have a holy war in effect with the with the Pelagians, end up in a big debating session with them, argue quite vigorously against them, and in the end win the day and the victory. And then Germanus is involved in preserving some of the Roman Britons or the British people at the time against the invading Anglo-Saxons. He uses miracles to turn them back. Uh, all of these kind of things are used in these stories to kind of give him an idea that he's, you know, he has command of God and can call down the angels and throw fire at people and massive miracles are done. And it's a fantastic story. And it comes from these writers in Gaul writing around that time period who then Bede is found and interpreted and rewritten the story. And it does two things for Bede, and this is what we have to look at here. One, it shows Christianity comes to Britain. It's important because it shows that, you know, the the heresy of Pelagianism was defeated by an outsider, not by the British population. The British population are considered to be, in religious terms, backsliders. They're not good Christians. They're bad Christians. And they only become good Christians when other people from outside tell them to be good Christians. And just like they weren't very good people before the Romans came, and the Romans came and had to tell them how to be good people, this is the same thing again, this time with Christianity. But the point is being made by a, an individual who, to be fair, is a part of a kingdom which is Anglo-Saxon, who has historical reasons to dislike the British, and specifically the kingdom of Gwynedd, which is a very powerful Welsh kingdom in this time period when he is around in the late 7th century. And so his feelings for the Welsh and for the British are very strong. And they're without a doubt that they're, that those people are lazy, that they're they can't be tolerated. They should never be in charge. They're bad at what they do. They're bad Christians, bad people, horrible individuals, and they deserved what they got. And that's what he's trying to tell you. So 
this is kind of what we're working with when we deal with Bede. And take it as a grain of salt that that is his bias. And he has reason for it. I mean, he's told how Gwyneth invaded his land and burned things. And in his description of it, massacred people. So he very much holds a lot of anger towards them, even if it's, in his perspective, righteous anger. So we look at these things within that concept. Now, a Welsh writer writing about this would have a totally different perspective on this. And and you can see that even in the Gaulish writers that we have, they weren't writing to say, oh, look at all those bad British people. They were saying, oh, look, an outsider brought Pelagianism into Britain, and the Britons have come to us to help drive it out. And so they're much more sympathetic to their ideas. So keep this kind of stuff in mind as we move off into um, later documents in the Middle Ages, as we get closer to proper historical documentation, because we're going to run into these biases and these concepts and these ideas fairly consistently on all sides. And we have to weed our way through them and deal with them, and we'll get through it. And I'll give you what I consider to be my interpretation of them as much as I can. But I think we need to, and we have to have sympathy with these sources because of that. But at the same time, we need to call them out when they're being crappy. <laughs> and I would say in Bede's case, the way he's describing it, his bent on this is driven by his bias and thus you can't take it at face value. But what does it tell us? It tells us that Christianity was strong in Britain. It was strong enough that there was actually religious contention on a Christian viewpoint. Much like how the Britons became Romans very quickly, they became Christians very quickly. And they became Christianized very quickly. And they didn't have room for the old. They threw off the old very rapidly. And so... A lot of what they did was based on this new concept and these new ideas. And the reactions that they developed were based on all of this. And one of the things we're going to talk about next week as we go into the New Kingdoms is we're going to talk about how while this debate between the old and the new kicks off again and how you deal with certain things. And we're going to pin some blame on some people without necessarily knowing who these people are, but taking a guess at to what they were based on the writings of Gildas and how they, in their concept of things, may have created the problems that come later for the British people and eventually divides them into Scottish, Irish, Welsh, English, Cornish, and every other ish that we have involved in this argument and how this comes about in part because the Roman Britons are trying to do things in a very Roman way and it backfires. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how some of the early kingdoms got involved in, and were coming to the fore in Wales. Keeping in mind in all this, there's a lot of legendary nature to this, so we can't be sure of everything. Names, places, kingdoms even can be a little sketchy because we don't know what makes up a kingdom in the 5th century. They're probably not what we think of them as, because we have a very mid, you know, high Middle Ages kind of view when it comes to kingdoms. They're not like that in this situation. They're not going to be. But we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the origins of some of the kingdoms of Wales 
and we'll get more in-depth into that next time. I hope you're all having a fantastic week, and uh, I hope you're having a good holiday season, hopefully. And uh, if you have any comments, concerns, or criticisms, or anything, you can always contact me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can talk to me on Twitter at JohnDMP, that's my personal Twitter account, or at Welsh History Pod, that's the Welsh History's uh, account. And then find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast and follow along and comment. I uh, always love views and ideas and things brought forward. It's, it's great. Last week we had our live stream. That was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of work. And good and tired now. But uh, we look forward to, to doing similar things. And uh, hopefully I'll have an update on some things coming in the new year. Because we're going to have a little bit of additional stuff coming. I will warn you that probably next week we'll have our full episode, but the week after that, the Christmas weekend, and possibly the New Year, things might be a little shaken up, and if they are, I'll let you know. I haven't decided yet quite what we're doing. I might do something on Christmas traditions and kind of avoid the history stuff for Christmas Eve-ish time, Um, but I might not. We'll see. (laughs) Or I may just take the two weeks off. Either way, I'll let you know next week. Until then, we'll talk to you later. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.